You are listening to The Natural Philosopher with Dr. Mick Pope, a podcast on science, the environment, and the Christian faith. This podcast is written and produced on the lands of the Wurundjeri people of the Kulin Nation, and I pay my respects to Elders past, present and emerging of all Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander nations, acknowledging that sovereignty has never been ceded. It always was, and always will be, Aboriginal land. Well, welcome to another episode of The Natural Philosopher with me, Dr. Mick Pope. And today's program came to me today. I have been thinking about a few other topics, but Today I was talking with some students about Carl Sagan and his pale blue dot. And so I want to um, tease that uh, short speech or short passage from Sagan apart and reflect upon it theologically. If you don't know who Carl Sagan is, he was a a well-published scientist, an astrophysicist, a planetary scientist, someone with a very strong interest in the search for extraterrestrial intelligence, the man who was responsible for putting a, a gold record on a space probe with an image of uh, a man and a woman and uh, sounds of the Earth on it. He was an incredibly passionate science communicator. And in the 80s, he had this wonderful TV series um, entitled Cosmos. And you may not be familiar with it, but you might be familiar with Neil deGrasse Tyson's reboot. Now, Neil was a student of, of Carl's and, and one of his protégés. Uh, that series was incredibly significant for me. It helped me decide finally to do physics in the latter years of high school and not biology, as much as I was also influenced by David Attenborough and who says television is a negative influence. Uh, I went on to do mathematics and physics and then uh, a master's in physics and finally a PhD in meteorology. So he was an, a, an individual who helped me discover or continue my journey rather of a sense of awe of the world around me and particularly um, that outside of the earth's atmosphere so this uh, excerpt i'm going to read you comes from his book pale blue dot and it was inspired by an image that was taken at his suggestion uh, by voyage one on the 14th of february 1990 so that's uh, a rather fortuitous thing. Uh, Yesterday was the 14th of February, uh, Valentine's Day, so I'm recording on the 15th of February 2021. So as the spacecraft was departing our planetary neighbourhood, or it was on its way out of the the solar system, or or certainly headed on its way to the fringes, he he asked to have the camera turned around and took a family portrait. And the argument was that it wasn't of any scientific value because the planets were so small and you wouldn't be able to see much of them. But I think there's a great value. There's been an ongoing value in the picture, which is evidenced in the quote. And then I, as I say, I'll tease it apart from a a theological point of view or a Christian reflection. So let me read uh, to you what he reflected upon. Look again at that dot. That's here. That's home. That's us. On it, Everyone you love, everyone you know, everyone you have ever heard of, every human being who ever was, lived out their lives. The aggregate of our joy and suffering, 
thousands of confident religions, ideologies and economic doctrines. Every hunter and forager, every hero and coward, every creator and destroyer of civilization, every king and peasant, every young couple in love, every mother and father, hopeful child, inventor and explorer, every teacher of morals, every corrupt politician, every superstar, every supreme leader, every saint and sinner in the history of our species lived there, on a moat of dust, suspended in a sunbeam. The earth is a very small stage in a vast cosmic arena. Think of the rivers of blood spilled by all those generals and emperors so that, in glory and triumph, they could become the momentary masters of a fraction of a dot. Think of the endless cruelties visited by the inhabitants of one corner of this pixel on the scarcely distinguishable inhabitants of some other corner. How frequent their misunderstandings, how eager they are to kill one another, how fervent their hatreds. Our posturings, our imagined self-importance, the delusion that we have some privileged position in the universe are challenged by this point of pale light. Our planet is a lonely speck in the great enveloping cosmic dark. In our obscurity, in all this vastness, there is no hint that help will come from elsewhere to save us from ourselves. The earth is the only world known so far to harbour life. There is nowhere else, at least in the near future, to which our species could migrate. Visit? Yes. Settle? Not yet. Like it or not, for the moment, the Earth is where we make our stand. It has been said that astronomy is a humbling and character-building experience. There is perhaps no better demonstration of the folly of human conceits than this distant image of our tiny world. To me, it underscores our responsibility to deal more kindly with one another and to preserve and cherish the pale blue dot, the only home we've ever known. As a Christian, as a scientist, as someone who's had a long-standing passion in astronomy and astrophysics, my first postgrad degree was meant to be a PhD in theoretical astrophysics, ended up a master's. I think there's a lot of material in here uh, that, for me at least, resonates. As a Christian thinker, as a uh, aspiring theologian, yeah, I have some differences and see things from a somewhat different perspective. I think Sagan opens up a rich area of discussion, and I know for the, the short time I've been teasing this apart a bit, that there's far deeper we could go in this amazing uh, statement of his. So I want to spend a few minutes and the rest of the program in, in teasing this apart a little bit. It's, it's interesting how different, in a sense, this image is to one of the more famous ones, possibly more famous for people that preceded this. It's called the Blue Marble. And it's a full disc image of the Earth taken from Apollo 17 in 1972. Apollo 17 was 29,000 kilometers away from the Earth. And it's ended up being, and probably still is, a rallying cry for environmentalism and the peace movement. We could really see for, you know, more or less the first time that we shared one planet. 
one body of oceans, one atmosphere. From space, you can't see national boundaries. We see those on a map. They're lines that human beings have drawn. We see the outline of continents. We see vast oceans, deserts of sand, the green of vegetation. And in high-res imagery, you can see things, for example, like the Great Barrier Reef. But we don't see the lines uh, that we draw. And people have gone on to talk about Spaceship Earth to illustrate that we are fellow travellers through time and space. The pale blue dot image, as the cameras on the Voyager probe were turned around, were six billion kilometres away. And the size of the Earth was 0.12 of a pixel. Less than a pixel. This pale blue dot. And from it, I think, we can draw, or rather Carl Sagan draws, I think some interesting contradictions and paradoxes that we can investigate. And I should say too, of course, is that there's some value of doing this in the age in which we live, which is the age of the Anthropocene, of climate change and COVID-19 and all sorts of other things. Sagan says that the Earth is small in a vast cosmic arena, and yet he tells us that we're to deal more kindly with each other. How do you get from a universal insignificance to an ethic, to a moral principle? What's the connection? Is there a logical one, or is it just that he draws one from the other? Or as they say, how can he get ought what we should do from what is? He says that we don't know if life exists elsewhere. It may or may not. But he also says that we don't appear to inhabit a privileged position. We don't know still whether or not science, uh, life, um, the appearance of life is chancy or inevitable. Let alone, you know, thinking about this theologically, I've done this briefly in other episodes. But oftentimes there's three principles that are applied. There's the one, the principle of uniformity, which says that the laws of physics, the laws of nature are the same everywhere. There's the principle of mediocrity, which says that evolution here is unexceptional and should uh, proceed the same way anywhere. And thirdly, there's the principle of plenitude, which can either be theological or naturalistic in its fashion, that says that everything that can be realised will be realised. I think at best, only the first one is really empirical. So we need to be careful. In other words, Sagan, like many scientists poses some facts or some suggestions of facts or some observational data and then tries to draw a long bow to some philosophical import. I feel that we're driven to do that. doesn't mean that he's necessarily successful in that endeavour. So what I want to do in the remainder of this half and in the second half is to briefly identify a few points that I think are worthy of discussion and it really is brief in teasing these things out and maybe it will give you uh, pause for thought and do a bit better than me. The first is that Sagan identifies our common humanity. What does he talk about? He talks about the, in the history of our species. And so he's grounding this firmly in evolutionary biology and talking about Homo sapiens. Now, straight off um, from there, we need to acknowledge that that's even porous 
We know that human beings in the past, Homo sapiens, have interbred with Denisovians, with um, Neanderthals. So the, the concept of our species is perhaps a little broader than we even allow, but the, I'll get back to this in a minute, but he's, he's focusing on that we are a species of animal. Christians, of course, need to learn to accept evolution. There is an abundance of evidence in the fossil record, and we're seeing it in real time. Indeed, people have anxiety about how quickly COVID-19 is evolving, and that's what it's doing. This is what viruses do. This is what life does. And trying to separate micro from macro is, is a misunderstanding. Small changes will add up to, to significant changes. And these indeed, these changes are, are quote-unquote small, but they're making the virus more effective in spreading. It's, it's a debate for another time, and it's an old and tired one, but Christians need to accept evolution. Now, one thing that we can also draw out from what Sagan's saying is that humans as a species means that we are part of nature and part of natural process and not separate from it. In other words, we are, in one sense, just another animal. And while the focus in his quote here is on our species, recognizing ourselves as a species uh, means that it's easy enough, I think, to extend the argument that he makes. And he kind of does a little bit at the end in a, a more holistic, open manner on other species. So this passage is focused upon the human condition and human agency. But nonetheless, that doesn't mean that it's exclusive of thinking about the non-human, the other than human, the more than human, however you want to put it. Now, I think the Bible does embrace this. Obviously, it doesn't embrace, embrace evolution. But firstly, humans are made in the image of God. Humans are made and then in the image of God. And of course, you can't get image of God from science. You can't get made from science either. It's a shift between nature, or product of natural process, or creation. But the fact that all human beings are made in the image of God, that God as potter, now shifting to Genesis 2, uh, shapes human beings to serve and keep earth, or indeed... Um, we're made to inhabit nations and find God. So this quote from Acts 17, from one ancestor, he made all nations to inhabit the whole earth and he allotted the times of their existence and the boundaries of the places where they would live so that they would search for God and perhaps grope for him and find him, though indeed he is not far from each one of us. Now, obviously, Paul had the same kind of cosmology. So he says from one ancestor. Doesn't mean that he's right in that respect. That's the dual nature of Scripture being human and divine. And this passage is certainly not a justification for colonialism or invasion or any of the sorts of things, but says that God um, established these boundaries so that people would seek after him because all human beings are made in the image of God. We are all human beings. We're one shared people. So two things that come out of that just before the break. The first is that we are a creation. And because we're made in the image of God, doesn't mean that we are precisely equal to God. And I think there's something of that behind the garden incident in Genesis 3. But it also means, and I've said this many times now, and I'm still getting my head around it myself, you know, and, you know um, just because I say it doesn't mean that it's, it's fully set in and that I fully enact this. But there's no room for ethnocentrism. 
we need to embrace post-colonialism. We need to seek wisdom where it is found. Uh, and in Australia, there's a great deal of wisdom in the First Nations peoples. So Sagan and the Bible agree, I think, on our common humanity. And it's the first place that, or one of the first places that we can go uh, for this. But the fact that I've talked about um, seeking wisdom where it's found leads into my next point, which I will go on with in the second half of the program. Well, welcome back to the program, and in the second half, we're continuing our analysis of Pale Blue Dot, which is a, a short excerpt from a book by Carl Sagan. The second point I think that's important is epistemological humility, so humble in our knowledge. He makes the statement about confident religions, ideologies, and economic doctrines. And I know Christians will struggle with this point. As we'll say, for example, in John's Gospel, Jesus says, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. What do we do with that in a pluralistic world? Well, we do the same thing that they did in the first century. Do you think that the 21st century is the only uh, period in earth history where there was more than one view of what the divine might be or what the meaning of life is? Or how you run governments or economies. I always think Acts 17 is our model of careful engagement rather than sanctimonious or imperialistic um, hubris or fashion. So you remember Paul wanders about and he sees many idols and as a Jew he is distressed by those idols. But when he sees an idol to an unknown God he riffs off that and says what you don't proclaim as unknown, I can tell you as known. Here's the story of Israel, leading up to the Messiah Jesus. Here's how your own poets have understood this. In other words, he looks to build bridges. He looks for similarities. He looks for analogies. He understands, even in his distress, and even this is the writer of uh, Romans who, who talks about people not seeking after God, and yet also at the same time people having the law in their hearts. That here, in the Areopagus, is an example of the fact that it's put within us to seek after God. Now that, of course, does not, from a Christian point of view, say we're going to put all ideas on the same level. What Sagan is calling for is for us to question our confidence. And that, I believe, is a very Christian principle. For we know only in part, and we prophesy only in part. 1 Corinthians 13. And what does Paul uphold but love? Not in the abstract, not in the pure romantic, of course. Ultimately, the supreme sacrificial love of Jesus on the cross. However, we might fully understand that. And so that's where the rubber hits the road. Do we follow Jesus as Christians? Or do we follow a denomination? and its distinctives? Do we follow our systematic theologies? 
How do we avoid ideology as Christians? What does that even mean? I mean, I'm not claiming any expertise in this area, but what does it mean to hold on to faith but not fall into ideology? Let me give you some comparisons. I think they're useful. I've said before that I think that um, critical realism is a good model for faith and for science. That is to say, we acknowledge that beyond ourselves is some kind of reality, a physical system, or a God that we can't directly see or touch or hear or feel. Those two things might seem separate, but the methodologies are similar. You need to test a scientific theory. Does it do a good job of predicting phenomena? Does it match what we see? If your theology does not do that, then you have to ask yourself a question whether or not you need to change your theology. This, in a sense, is really behind my views of Christian humanism, that it's not throwing away the tenets of the faith, but it's testing them as hard as you can and being open to data, understanding that wisdom comes in many places, even if absolute truth, however you might understand what that statement means, only comes from one source. Yes, I believe in a God of revelation. I'm not one of these non-interventionalist God types. Indeed, so much so do I believe that God interacts rather than intervenes that we expect to see the fingerprints of God in many human traditions. Even if what we read in the book of Hebrews that the last and the final word comes in Jesus. But that said, what does it mean that the last and final word comes in Jesus? How has that worked out as we encounter new experiences and new ideas? It means there is no more, I suppose, depth of understanding about the nature of God, but nonetheless we continue to work with what it means to know and to follow Jesus. And that comes back to what I said just before. Not following your ideologies, not following your denomination. And some Christians would stretch it so far as to say not to follow the Bible, or perhaps more precisely, that you don't worship the Bible. Your trinity is not Father, Son, and Holy Scriptures. It's Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. And therefore, we need to read the Bible in a very open manner, in a very Christocentric manner, in a very Christ-centered, driven manner. That, of course, is one of the things that helps us set aside, set aside is not the right word, but to understand that we're not in, and go back to Tom Wright's five-act play of Scripture, that we're not in the previous acts, particularly that of the period of the, the, the Hebrew Bible being written. But we must always test our ideas. And I've said this before, the whole point of this podcast is to create a theological safe space, throw some ideas around, and not saying that I know everything or that I'm the, the perfect moral human being. And, and none of us can do that. Let he is without sin cast the first stone, is what Jesus said, and they all walked away. Uh, the next thing that comes up is existential humility and human privilege. Uh, which is to say this whole thing about Sagan saying that we don't occupy some privileged position in the universe. And look, I don't think that that's quite fair or true. There are certainly parts of the universe that are not 
hospitable for life at all. But then what do we do with that in terms of our significance and so on? The psalmist writes, When I look at your heavens, the work of your fingers, the moon and the stars that you have established, what are human beings that you are mindful of them? Mortals that you care for them. Yet you have made them a little lower than God and crowned them with glory and honour. Now, you remember that the ancients believed in a three-tiered universe. So the earth is flat and the stars exist on a dome. And yet the psalmist could get it in a way in which moderns perhaps don't always. I mean, after all, in the ancient world, you could see the Milky Way. You could see the stars at night. Now, I live in Melbourne and I can't see anything, really. It's just a handful of stars. And I've touched about this, uh, touched on this in a, a previous episode where I reviewed a a book um, that dealt with the problem of light pollution and the fact that we don't have access to um, the night sky. So there's a different cosmology between Sagan and the psalmist, but at least in part of it, there's a shared awe of astronomy, if you like. Sagan says astronomy is a humbling and character-building experience, and there's really strong echoes of it in this psalm. But there's, while there's a different cosmology, there's also a different philosophy operating. The psalmist says the work of your fingers. And so he believes in a creator God, as did anyone and everyone in the ancient world. And a lot of people in the modern world, or the current period, if to um, be careful how, how I use modern in that sense. Many, I believe, is not derived from random process and not from empiricism. Not ultimate meaning. I'm sure philosophers will take issue with that. Some theologians may be as well. But in the psalm, for the psalmist, uh, our identity, significance, responsibility and role are all a matter of appointment, of making them, crowning them, choosing them, not moral or evolutionary bootstrapping. The psalmist is saying quite clearly... Um, that yes, in the face of the vastness of creation, and it is creation in this framework, you human beings are insignificant. We do live on a pale blue dot, although there's no way the psalmist could conceive of that. But with a night a sky full of lights, the stars, the psalmist could make this connection. And so meaning comes not without God, but with God, and meaning and responsibility and role, etc., is assigned to human beings. The psalm is, of course, a commentary or from a similar source to Genesis 1, and it talks about the responsibility and the rule that we have over creatures. Is it a role or is it a responsibility? And the answer, of course, for a Christian, it's both. Um, and we need to think carefully about what it means to rule in this sense. Uh, certainly, the current situation we find ourselves in really does remind us that there's a lot of hubris behind a lot of thinking about what it means to rule, and I've talked about this uh, in a previous episode. Nonetheless, not from our moral superiority, not from our intellectual superiority, not from our physical superiority, but from divine choice, the biblical view is that human beings are crowned a little lower than God, crowned uh, with glory and honour, 
and with a responsibility as vicegerents. The fourth point that Sagan makes that I think is worthy of reflection is our earthbound existence. Uh, and he picks up on this when he says that um, the earth is the only world we know so far to harbour life. Um, um, at least in the near term, there's nowhere else that we could migrate to, visit yes, settle no. Like it or not, for the moment, the earth is where we make our stand. Not sure I understand who wouldn't like it, but lots of people d dream of different ideas. And then he goes and say that um, uh, it's a tiny world. To me, it underscores our responsibility to deal more kindly with one another and to preserve and cherish the pale blue dot, the only home we've ever known. Now, there's two, and I've, I think I've talked about this before in this program and certainly in the book, uh, All Things New, that there's, uh, if you like, two forms of eschatology or end times things. One is the, the rapture. Um, when I say two times eschatology, I mean in a, what I consider a pejorative sense. There's the rapture, the idea that human beings are beamed up to heaven and we escape all the disasters of our own making, be it climate change or wars, or if you get into the more lurid ideas, the, the armies of, of hell or heaven or whatever, marching over the earth and destroying all in their path. In the secular realm, we leave the earth behind for Mars. And I, I, look, I want to say that I'm not against the idea of human colonies elsewhere, or indeed spending money on space exploration, we spend so much on war and war machinery. If we stopped spending money on that, we could solve all the world's problems, in theory, anyway. We could uh, fund the approaches and fund really great science for a whole bunch of other things, including space travel and settling on Mars. But the idea that you might do that instead of fixing the Earth first is another form of rapture-type theology. Need I remind you again on this program that resurrection theology is creation-affirming, earth-affirming. Revelation 21, a new heavens and new earth, and he heaven comes down to earth and is joined. Romans 8, creation groans in birth pains, waits for the resurrection of the children of God uh, to escape its own suffering, its own servitude or slavery. Reconciliation of, of God and all things in Ephesians 1 and Colossians 1 and the creation imagery in John 1 and John chapter 20. So plenty there. Finally then, ought from is, being kind as an ethic for the Anthropocene. Again, Sagan says, there is no hint that help will come from elsewhere to save us from ourselves. He's an atheist. Fair enough. And our responsibility to deal more kindly with one another and to preserve and cherish the pale blue dot, which follows from the first. Um, the, the first point, the first idea is behind UFOs and the search for extraterrestrial intelligence. And, and Sagan was deeply involved in kind of um, exploring and, and I guess defraud, um, defrauding, that's not the word, <laughs> um, disproving a lot of the, the UFO ideas and research, Project Blue Book, etc. that was going on in the United States. Aliens coming to save us from ourselves. No, that's not going to happen. Uh, being rescued from suffering by a rapture theology. No, that's not going to happen. But there's more subtle forms as well of Christians who believe, yes, God's going to return and make all things new and, and tie everything up and make things from scratch and what happens beforehand doesn't matter. 
you know, you can live one of two ways. You can live as a Christian who's irresponsible and doesn't care because they think, well, God will fix it anyway. And then a kind of despondency that says God's just going to let us sit in our own mess and suffer. And somewhere in between, I think, is the understanding that resurrection theology means the earth will be renewed, but humans have agency. Certainly one of the things when uh, Sagan lists all the different characters from corrupt politicians to you know, supreme leaders, etc., he understands that human, um, and in this, the first quote I read, no help coming from elsewhere to save us from ourselves, to recognize not, quote-unquote, the devil made me do it, but this evil comes from within. So he really implicates human agency, which I don't think is incompatible with salvation in Christ. In mind, it's salvation, uh, saving us from ourselves, from the consequences of what we've done, uh, we've done to this planet and to each other, but not how to deal with what drives us to need to save ourselves from ourselves. In other words, this isn't ultimate salvation, if you will, spiritual salvation, unity with God, but it's certainly saving us from the stupid things that we do. And I certainly think that we're given responsibility to do that. Um, and the church certainly hasn't always been a model of kindness. Um, see the US at the moment, anti-vax evangelists in the Amazon and so on. But how do we get the ought of this uh, being kind from the ears of seeing the world as tiny as Sagan tries to do? Is this whistling in the dark? Why not just model ourselves on the ubermensch or en engage in self-interest? And the, rich, uh, the global rich in the world are thinking and planning for the future now, many of them, about the world going to pot and how they might save themselves. And I, I think it, the... Right nowism, to coin a phrase, uh, appears uh, behind energy policy in many countries today that kindness is not where it's at, unless it's to myself or my electric right electorate right now. Basic human compassion and the church. Um, so, in other words, this kindness that Sagan's calling for is a basic form of human compassion, and the church has no monopoly on kindness, and is often evident. Uh, evidence is the opposite. So I want to finish by saying, actually, I think if the Christian church wants to offer something unique, and I've said this before, that we need to move beyond basic kindness to making way, to sacrifice, to a kenotic effort that's uh, cruciform and Christ-shaped. Well, that's a really brief, brief um, covering of, of Sagan's ideas. I think it's rich for, for meditation. I think he hits the nail on the head in many areas. Uh, thoughtful Christians will disagree um, with some of his underlying philosophy. Uh, but he called science and religion to reconcile in some way for activism. I've got that book on, on the way coming in the post, uh, and that's one of the under, uh, ongoing underlying themes of this podcast. So hope that was thought-provoking. Thank you uh, for listening once more, and God bless. You have been listening to The Natural Philosopher. This podcast was written and produced by Mick Pope. The theme music is from Antonio Vivaldi's Four Seasons, conducted by John Harrison, with the Wichita State University Chamber Players and downloaded from the Free Music Archive. You can subscribe to this podcast on Podbean, Apple and Google Podcasts and Spotify. You can also like and comment on my Facebook page, Mick Pope, Natural Philosopher.